When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, January 5th. Yes, it's the first week of the 2023 season. You never want to read too far into any of the results we've seen unfold. That said, through the first few days of play, some things just keep on happening, and those are the sorts of things I want to highlight here on today's show. Of course, it's also worth keeping in mind, first impressions matter. And after a month plus of speculating about how we expected this 2023 season to unfold, we finally do have some data, some encouraging early trends to highlight for all of you listeners today. I want to switch up the order of how I've been covering things, though, on this show. Of course, I'm still going to speak about each of the five events we focused on all week long on the Mini Break podcast. They include the four tour-level events we have happening for the men, women competing side-by-side in Adelaide. All of the action there has delivered high-level tennis. Of course, I do want to talk about those events, but I feel like I haven't spent enough time highlighting what's happened in New Zealand, in India. I'm going to start the show with those two events in particular. Finally, got a chance to dive headfirst into the Coco Golf matches we've seen unfold so far this week. Golf, an impressive straight-set victory over Sonia Kennan in the round of 16, follows that up on Thursday or Friday in Australia with another straight set win over Ju Lin. Goff has brought her best stuff to start this 2023 season. I'll explain what I mean by that here on today's show. I also, even in a losing effort, want to talk about how I really enjoyed what I saw out of Sonia Kennan when she was at her best in moments of her matchup against Coco Goff. Now, again, it's a match she fell short, but considering how disappointing some of the results we saw from Kennan were last season, to see her competing at the level she did, to see her play as decisively as she did, trust me, it'll be worth the two to seven minutes I spent discussing it here on today's show. Of course, it wasn't just the Americans in Auckland. Layla Fernandez knocked out in straight sets by, I suppose, the tricky lefty, Yeslin Bonaventure. And when I say tricky, I mean just Layla Fernandez could not find her rhythm throughout the course of Thursday here in the States. Friday, I'm done with the date issues. The point is, throughout the course of yesterday's match between the two, I want to highlight what I saw, why it's one loss. I'm not that concerned for Layla Fernandez moving forward, of course. Then we'll head over to India, where the story of the week is Aslan Karatsev. If this Karatsev shows up to the Australian Open, he can make the sort of run we've seen him make in Australia before, not necessarily semifinals like we saw a few years ago, but... Could Aslan Karatsev, second week at the Australian Open, be in play? Absolutely, if he sustains this level. Of course, there are a couple of other guys who have sustained the level we've seen from them from the past 18 months, and that level is top 50 good. Of course, I'm referring to Botik Vandesen, Schkop, Benjamin Bonzi, each of whom advanced to the semifinals in India. Both of those guys did it the hard way. They weren't handed wild cards. They weren't top-rated juniors making the smoothest transitions directly to having success on the Pro Tour. Now, these are two guys who had to go through the Futures ranks, the Challenger ranks, now have cemented their spots on the ATP Tour, and ultimately, that's where you need to be to be making money. That's where you need to be to continue to progress, not only in the rankings, but progress as a player. To be the best, you have to beat the best. You see the best day in, day out on the ATP Tour. And I want to credit BVDZ, Bonzi, what they've done over the course of the past 18 months here on today's show, both off two strong starts in India, of course. Then we got to talk United Cup. Jessica Pagula, finally a victory over Iga Sviantek. I know the big story out of that match is how ideal the conditions were in Sydney for Pagula, but she had to do the damn thing 
and she did it. And we'll talk about how here on today's show. Again, a two and two win, two and two over world number one Iga Świątek. That never happens. So, want to spend some time there. Talk about how Team USA is unequivocally the favorites to capture this United Cup. Maybe not this year, but maybe moving forward, especially with the depth we see right now on both the men's and women's sides. That depth has thrived throughout the course of this United Cup. And again, to get the win over for Pagula over Sviantec, talked about exactly what the doctor ordered. So I want to talk about their hot start. I will point out I am recording this podcast prior to Greek, uh, Greek, excuse me, to Greece. Leave it in. Super producer Daniel Westoff. I deserve to be shamed for that. I am recording this podcast prior to Greece, Italy, really getting into the thick of that semifinal matchup now. Obviously, Sakari, Tsitsipas, all tournament long, they've had to deliver victories. They'll have to do that again. Although the Papa Mikhail versus whomever Italy plays at the two spot, that will be fascinating. Obviously, if there's any chance for Italy, Musetti probably has to win. I mean, you imagine a pathway to victory involves a Berrettini victory over Stefano Tsitsipas as well. So two very fun semifinal rubbers. I will focus on what I did see, if anything, remarkable happens between Greece and uh, Italy uh, uh, today, meaning Thursday night here on the West Coast. I will talk about it on tomorrow's podcast. And again, I promised it early in the week. I promise it again here to all of you listeners. Weekend pods. It's week one, number one of the tournament. We finally have matches to discuss. I can get all into Linda Naskova. I can get into Novak Djokovic. We've got a lot of pathways to take this weekend. So I want to take that of a take all that available content and provide something for all of you listeners to help absorb all of this first week action. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you. And of course, because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. Keep it brief today, tennis-point.com for all of your equipment needs. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. With that said, Again, want to talk about some of the recurring themes throughout the course of this first week, and I'll start with that WTA event happening in Auckland. The biggest takeaway in a week that has been filled with upsets is how rock solid Coco Goff has looked throughout the course of her path, uh, throughout the course of her event in Auckland. You look for Goff three pretty comprehensive victories so far. 4-1 and one in round number one against Tatiana Maria. Now she was down, I believe, 4-2 in the opening set of that match, but, you know, wins 10 out of the final 11 games on her way to the victory there. Then again, a very rock-solid 4-4 four and four win over Sonia Kennan, 3-2 and two today over Ju Lin. Let's start with the Kennan match. Kennan was the aggressor for, I would say, 60% of the match. And that is why I'm so encouraged by Sonia Kennan, her backhand or ability to take her backhand on the rise and both up the line and cross court, but in particular against Goff, Kennan's ability to take her backhand up the line and keep Goff honest and not allow Goff to cheat over on that ad side wing. That is what kept Kennan competitive. That is what kept Kennan on serve for so long throughout the course of this match. And it's always a pleasure to watch Kennan get into her bag of tricks. I mentioned over these past couple of days, I think Marketa Von Drusova has the best drop shot in tennis. Her drop shot lob combination also right up there. But Sonia Kennan belongs in that conversation as well. And to see her use her ability to take the ball on the rise to open up opportunities to hit the drop shot, hit the lob play the short angles, get into her bag of tricks, more importantly, keep Coco Goff on the move. Again, Kennan did the majority of the dictating in this match, but why I'm so encouraged about Coco Goff coming into this uh, Australian Open now and coming out of these Auckland matches is just how locked in she is physically. And look, it's not a hot take to say Coco Goff is one of the five best movers on the WTA Tour. It's even more remarkable that that's not a hot take considering She's still just 18 years old, but as well as Sonia Kennan moved the ball around the baseline throughout the course of the match, as good of a job as she did of opening up the court to hit through the Coco Goff forehand as opposed to just continuously trying to attack that wing and being repetitive in her attacks, you know, it didn't matter because Coco Goff's ability to track down balls that you think are hit to the open court and get 
ridiculous amounts of depth and action on those balls through the, her sheer athleticism, her sheer strength. Uh, it's why you just feel like a decade down the road when she's 28 years old, she may just be on a different planet athletically than everyone not named Iga on the WTA Tour because she has that combination of strength, speed, feel to guide those balls with depth, but to make sure they don't go flying past the baseline. I was remarkable. Uh, I was incredibly impressed by the remarkable defense on display from Goff in that match against Kennan. And then, you know, when she's landing the first serve, that first serve is often the biggest weapon on the court. And you look for Goff, who has won over 70% of her first serve points in each of her past two matches. I believe she actually did that today against Julin as well. So each of her last three matches. Now, it helped that the match against Kennan was played indoors. And you look for Goff, the first serve percentage was 57%. When outdoors against Tatiana Maria, up to 69% when indoors against Kennan. But when she lands that first serve, now she's able to play offense. And, you know, Sonia Kennan wants to be on top of the baseline, taking the return early so that she can hold her baseline position, be the aggressor. There were countless times where the Goff serve had too much pace, was into the body of Kennan. She left that return short, and now Goff has time to load on that forehand wing, and when she has time to load on it, she can hit it incredibly heavily. Obviously, she hits through the backhand down the line with ease, and you know, we don't talk enough about how good Coco Goff is as a volleyer. Yeah, I know she's already reached world number one in doubles, but you see that skill set manifest itself on the singles court with her willingness to hit the swinging volley, her willingness to just move forward behind the space she creates for herself and take time away by beating you to the spot, by moving forward to the net and taking that ball early out of the air. I mean, Coco Goff's skill set is just so complete. And obviously, opponents like Maria, Kennan, Julin don't have the first serves like an Iga, or, you know, the heaviness of the Iga ball, the first serves of a Sabalenka, of a Rabakina, you know, of a Caroline Garcia, the sorts of players who you feel like from a matchup perspective, just because they're able to expose the one, dare I say, vulnerability Goff still has left in her game, that forehand return, which continues to get better with every passing season, but it's still a vulnerability against elite weapons. You know, outside of that, it's going to take a special sort of performance to beat Coco Goff. And I think if you don't have that sort of elite weapon to hit through her forehand, you're just not going to beat her anymore. That's how high that floor is match in, match out. And here's a crazy Goff statistic for all of you tennis fans. Coco Goff now into just the ninth tour-level semifinal of her career by reaching this semifinal here in Adelaide. It's her first semifinal since Berlin back in June. She made just three semifinals throughout the course of last season. Now, again, she's still 18 years old, and to have made nine tour-level uh, semifinals, including one of them at the Grand Slam level, that's a remarkable level of success for any WTA teenager, let alone someone who's still 18 years old, has yet to play her age 19 season, and yet, you know, again— Somehow that number feels low for Coco Goff, and for what it's worth, you look at her in terms of quarterfinals. She's reached 19 total quarterfinals, now 9 and 10 in her career in the quarterfinal round. Only nine quarterfinals, and obviously you look for Goff still, uh, just the two titles, didn't hasn't won one since May 2021 in Parma. Boy, would it be fun to see her silence all of her critics who mentioned that only one title run with a title run to kick off this 2023 season and again into a ninth semifinal and off to the sort of start. Yes, she's played three opponents ranked outside the top 50, although I think Kennan certainly played at a top 50 level, but she beat them all in straight sets and she continues to beat the players, dare I say, she's supposed to beat. You look for Coco Goff now over the course of the last 52 weeks against players ranked outside the top 20. Goff now 35-9 and nine against opponents ranked outside the top 50. She's 24-2. and two. Guess what, folks? Half of tennis is beating who you're supposed to beat. And that's exactly what Coco Goff does already this early in her career. So... A lot of credit to Coco Goff, tons of credit to Sonia Kennan, who made that match very fun indoors as well. But Goff now into the semifinals, where she will now face uh, Danka Kavinich. And 
Look, I haven't talked much about Danka here, and I want to talk about some of the other, I suppose, players who have made runs this week as we focus on Auckland and some of the other results that have unfolded. Here's the thing for Danka Kovinic. You look at the win she's earned this week. Three-set win over Lauren Davis, straight-set win over now Hibino, now the straight-set win over qualifier Victoria Kuzmova. You know, the highest-ranked win for her this week is over the number 84 in the live rankings, Davis, and you know, for Danka Kavinish, they've been good matchups, players who don't have the sort of weapons who to really get her stretched and expose some of the extreme grips, especially that forehand grip that Kavinich has. That said, Kavinich is a matchup, you know, again, she brings a really high floor, match in, match out. She's going to push you physically, and uh, that's exactly what she did uh, throughout the course of her three victories here over the course of this week, just Lauren Davis didn't have enough easy weapons to wear Kavinich down, and it got to the point where Kavinich did have more time to swing through that forehand. Same deal with Kuzmova, just wasn't able to put enough pressure, put enough balls in the court, to be, truth be told, uh, to pressure Kavinich today. Dunka into the semifinals here in Adelaide. Now you look for Kavinich for, from a ranking perspective. It's worth noting she's up to number 56, 28 years old. 10 spots away from her career high, guarantees her at least qualifying entry into every tournament that she wants to play. You look for Kavinich by reaching, by the way, the semifinals here in Adelaide. She's into a tour-level semifinal uh, for the seventh time in her career. Third for her on hard courts, first outside of Tianjin, though, on a hard court. And it's actually interesting. You look for Danka Kavinich. She's got two quarterfinals in Charleston, uh, semifinals in Charleston, two semifinals in Tianjin, one in Istanbul, one in Parma, now one in Adelaide. So she's done it now at, what, five different sites? Add another one to the list. Seventh semifinal for the 28-year-old pushes her even closer to her career high ranking. And, I mean, look. In terms of the matchup for Goff, she is an 85% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract. This is another player ranked outside the top 50, and I just mentioned she's 24-2 against opponents ranked outside the top 50. This is an excellent opportunity for Goff to reach another final, and you know certainly, depending on the result tonight, Rebecca Masarova, who knocked out Sloane Stevens, had a really good week in Adelaide. She's taking on Carolina Mukova. Now, if Mukova wins that match, and Mukova's in form heading into the final, obviously, Carolina Mukova with her pedigree, that is no cakewalk for Coco Goff, but should Mukova get knocked out somehow today, and I don't expect her to, but should she get knocked out I mean, now the pathway really opens for Goff to notch that third title on her belt and end that drought very early here in the 2023 season, which again, to me, would be an absolute pleasure, of course. The last thing I would talk about as it relates to Auckland, and I'll do this, I suppose, a bit quicker, it was just a weird day at the office for Leila Fernandez. Fernandez, who, you know, from Canada, played a ton of indoor tennis in her life, yet just could not find a rhythm against Yesleen Bonaventure today in the qualifier Bonaventure, the victory uh, in straight sets uh, over Fernandez today, the 28-year-old Bonaventure now up to number 97 in the live ranking. She's one win away from a new career high, eclipsing her 94 mark. And look, Bonaventure, lefty, big, loopy windup. Reminds me of Francesca DiLorenzo. Shout out to the Ohio State Buckeyes Women's College Tennis Program. But a windy, loopy lefty forehand that she moves really well around the court. She takes the ball early on the rise. Found angles, found depth that just consistently made Fernandez uncomfortable. And look, Layla made 69% of her first serves in this match to Bonaventure's 57. And yet, Bonaventure won 72% of those first serve points. She won 58% of her second serve points, fought off five of the six break points that she faced. She's taken every Leila Fernandez return, uh, second serve return, uh, second serve, excuse me, early on the rise on the return. Fernandez, seven of 18 on second serve points. And it just felt like she was always at a deficit in the rallies, always playing on Bonaventure's terms. And look, this was an indoor match. And Layla didn't have a rhythm after really finding her rhythm in her uh, round of 16 victory. This is an early season loss for Fernandez, who still hasn't played a ton of tennis over the course of the past few months. You look for Layla Fernandez now in the last 52 weeks. Fernandez has played just 37 matches. You look for her since August 8th, which is when she made her comeback from her post-excuse uh, me, French Open injury. Since August 8th, Fernandez has played just 15 matches. Now she's seven and eight 
in those 15 matches, but dropped just three games in her wins over Grobert, Fruvertova. Still wasn't quite ready for the pace of Bonaventure, and maybe that's something you keep an eye on heading towards the Australian Open, as obviously there are players who hit even bigger than Yesleen Bonaventure, but this match was also indoors. I think that really favored the Belgian Bonaventure, so I'm writing this one off. Still, really nice win for uh, Bonaventure, who you look now overall by reaching the semifinal round here in Auckland in terms of career tour-level semifinals. It's our first, and shout-out to someone who makes their first tour-level semifinal at the age of 28. Shout-out, Yasleen Bonaventure. As of right now, again, Mukova, Masarova, I think they're just starting their match, or they're maybe at at the end of the first set as of this recording. Regardless, Coco Goff, 63.9% favorite right now. They see it as her event to lose with my eyes. Uh, That's, excuse me, that's exactly what my eyes say as well, having had the chance to catch up on all the action. Hopefully now all of you feel adequately brought up to speed on everything that's happening in New Zealand. Let's move next to India and This is the worst tournament for me schedule-wise because as late as I've been going to bed, the action in India usually just getting underway even when I'm falling asleep. And then when I wake up, it's either in the books or just ending. That said, the biggest takeaway for me, how freaking good has Aslan Karatsev been this week? I would legitimately argue that Karatsev has been better this week than he was at any point throughout the course of the 2022 season. And of course, you look for him last year, 18-31 and 31 overall was Karatsev. He only made one semifinal. It also was at the start of the season on his way to what was a run to the title in Sydney. But I mean, he hasn't looked that good since then. And you look for Karatsev, who lost 19 first-round matches throughout the course of last season, went 11-19 and 19 overall. Hasn't dropped a set yet. One and three over Pablo Andohar. Didn't face a break point. Six and six over Tim Van Reithoven. Van Reithoven, uh, or excuse me, Karatsev broke Van Reithoven at the start of the second set. Van Reithoven immediately gets that break back, and you could see Karatsev was frustrated for having seeded what was an extraordinarily valuable break when you face as proficient and big of a server as TVR. And then it was a dominant. One and two win over Pedro Martinez, where he saved all five break points that he faced over one, only won 33% of his second serve points, but for the third consecutive match, won over 82% of his first serve points and made those first serves at a uh, 69% clip, hit double digit aces in the match against Martinez. He is snapping off his forehand, taking the ball early on the rise, moving forward confidently behind those balls. This is as well as I've ever seen Aslan Karatsev play, who, by the way, 29 years old, but has now played two full seasons of tour-level ball, certainly appears to have been motivated. He looks fit. He looks focused, coming off of what was obviously an extraordinarily disappointing 2021. And, you know, for what it's worth, Aslan Karatsev, in his career now, into a tour-level semifinal for just the sixth time overall, and, you know, All of the five have come since the start of the 2021 season. This is all still relatively new for Aslan Karatsev. That said, you know, Karatsev's 4-1 in his five career tour-level semifinals, the only one he lost to Novak Djokovic in the Australian Open semifinals. This guy's clutch. He's nails in the later stages of events. He just has struggled to get there over the course of the last year. That said, again, It's the focus. It's the confidence with which he's taking the ball early on the rise. He's just overwhelmed inferior opponents. And after not doing that for the majority of last season, boy, is that encouraging. Again, this is a guy who won a title to start last season prior to Australia. But if he sustains this level, we should see him in the second week in Melbourne, regardless of who ends up in his draw. Because again, with the contact point that he plays, that ability to disrupt your rhythm by taking that ball early on the rise, putting you under pressure by moving forward. I mean, Greek Spore's a great litmus test because Greek Spore's going to stretch you physically. He's going to force you to play an extra ball for what it's worth. Tennis Abstract has Greek Spore as a 53.1% favorite. Greek Spore advances with the withdrawal, uh, withdrawal of Marin Cilic. I mean, I test-wise cards has been the best player in the draw, and that's including how well Botic van de Senschkulp and Benjamin Bonzi have each played over the course of these opening matches, and I want to turn to them next because when I look at BVDZ, when I look at Benjamin Bonzi, I just respect 
the effort each of those guys have put in, the grind, and what it's meant, you know, again, and just their abilities to, to sustain themselves on the ATP Tour because usually if you don't do that by the time you're 23, 24 years old, that pathway to the top 50 just does not open up for you. And, I mean, you look at what Botik van de has done since tour play resumed in August 2020, this pandemic era. It's been one of the biggest rising stars in men's tennis. You look for Botic, 110 and 60 overall. He's lived the two-thirds rule now for two and a half years. And, you know, you look for him, 110 and 60 overall. How many of those matches came at the challenger level? I can tell you there were 45 of them at the challenger level. He went 31 and 14 in challengers throughout the course of 2021. Obviously, last year plays primarily an ATP schedule where he goes 38 and 29 overall. And you look for him in first matches of events, 20 and 8 was Botic in first matches of tournaments. Now, you look for him in second matches. That's where he struggled. 9-11 and 11 go, oh, overall. You look for him, Botic, only five. Oh, I say only five. Five quarterfinals on the year. Pretty darn impressive. Even if I think all of them come at the 250 level, but... That's how you keep yourself in the top 50. That's how Botic reached a career high of 22 last year. That's why he enters the year ranked at 35 overall compared to Karatsev being outside the top 50 because he beat who he was supposed to beat 20-8 overall in first matches last season. And again, you look for Botic in terms of opponents who he's faced who were ranked lower than him over the course of the past year. I always think this is indicative of, again, your level, your ability to clean up and beat who you're supposed to beat. He's 22-12 and 12 against opponents ranked outside the top 50, against opponents ranked lower than him. Again, 28-15 overall last season. That's why he's put himself in a position to uh, reach, you know, again, as many semifinals. What did I say the number was? Tour-level semifinals now for Botik van de Sinschulp in his career. He has now made a grand total uh, of five tour-level quarterfinals overall in his career, the fifth coming this week in India. And, you know, again, I said it earlier, I think there's a little more snap on the forehand. Didn't face a break point last night against Martyr. Martyr just was one speed. And if you can only do one thing against Botik van de you better do it extraordinarily well because few players are better at taking away the thing you want to do most than Botik, who just throws you off with the slices, the angles, the slaps up the line. The constant moving forward. Really impressed by Botik van de Really impressed by Benjamin Bonsi as well. You look for the 26-year-old Frenchman entered the week ranked number 60 with his run to the semifinal. Benjamin Bonsi up to number 53, nine spots off his career high of 44. Same deal when you look for Bonsi, what he has done since August of 2020. And, you know, there's a reason he's in the running for the highest ranked Frenchman position. Bonsi 104 and 62. He's winning 63 percent of his matches you look at how many of them were played at the challenger level Bonzi 68 and 18 it's one 79 percent of his matches at the challenger level since august 2020 obviously had the massive 2021 in challengers a season where he goes 50 and 13 overall at the challenger level you know you look for him last year 13 and 1 in challenger play but played primarily an atp schedule where yes he went 21 and 25 Overall, but you look for Bonzi 12 and 11 in the first matches that he played. He reached the semifinals of events two times last season once in Marseille, once in Majorca. Now he gets another semifinal here in India, his uh, four, uh, third, excuse me, again at the tour level. I mean, that's how you keep yourself inside the top 75 by again going over 500 in your first round ATP matches, putting yourself in a position to play top 50 opponents. And look, for Bonzi, over the course of 2022, you look for him against top 50 opponents. He went 3-19 and overall against the top 50. Obviously, that's the test for him to get to that next level is he's got to get past that top 50 threshold. Well, he already got to win over a top 50 opponent over Emil Rusevori. And again, you look for him last season, if he went 3-19 and against the top 50, obviously he meant went pretty well the other way. 18-6 and six against opponents ranked outside the top 50. He's your litmus test. That right there proves it. If you're 3-19 and 19 against the top 50, but 18-6 and six against opponents ranked outside of it, you're a litmus test of what it takes to be a top 50 player. And that feels about right when you actually watch Benjamin Bonsi play, who's got a really well-rounded game 
when you give him time, he can snap through the forehand, Very does very well to absorb, redirect pace on that backhand wing. The first serve can be a weapon, and he places it well, but he's not a guy who lives in the 130-plus mile-per-hour range that frequently. He's very good at a lot of things. I don't know if he's exceptional at anything other than the fact that he's very good at a lot of things, and I think his best trait is that there is no glaring weakness, although if I'm making a game plan, it probably involves using pace through the forehand and look, for Ponce, he's played, th- you know, absorbed the pace of Rusevori really well in the round of 16, and then outlasted two guys in Krajinovic and Sung, who just didn't have the sort of weapons necessary to expose that forehand and force Ponce to be stretched. Three straight set wins to start off the season for Benjamin Ponce into, again, a third career tour-level semifinal on the precipice of cracking the top 50, and 18-6 and six against opponents ranked outside the top 50. 3-19 and 19 against opponents ranked inside of it. That is the litmus test, my friend, for what it means to be a top 50 player. That said, you look at India moving forward. Botic, 45.8% favorite. Bonzi, 19.5. Greeksborn, 19.1. Karatsev, 15.6. If I was handicapping the field, I'd say it's 50-50 between Botic and Karatsev. If Karatsev keeps this level, I'll pick him in the final, and he may be an underdog according to oddsmakers, so that might be a fun one, perhaps to wager on. But Karatsev's looked the best. You got four really tough outs. Uh, Four guys who also, again, late in their reaching relative to most career trajectories they were later in breaking into the top 100, and all of them over the past 18 months have found ways to stay. So, again... If you like the hard-earned, challenger, grinding stories, India is the tournament for you this weekend. That said, I want to get back to the tour-level events in Adelaide momentarily. Let's have some fun now. Let's talk about Laver Cup. And by Laver Cup, I mean United Cup. And by United Cup, I mean leave that in, of course, Super Producer Daniel Westoff, because that was an egregious, unforced error. That said, I mean, look— when, as, it, as it pertains to tennis, it has oftentimes in my life been disadvantageous to be born in the United States simply in relation to the fandom because do I remember Andy Roddick's run to the U.S. Open a title in 2003? I do not. I obviously have seen highlights of it subsequently, and I remember many a times with Andy Roddick making finals at Wimbledon or you know pushing Roger Federer being a top 10 guy on the ATP Tour. But of course, I really got into my tennis fandom post Roddick's prime. And while John Isner was often competitive at a lot of, you know, made a lot of third rounds at majors, was top 32 guy for the majority, if not all, of his pro career, I'm not used to seeing the United States dominate at a big event the way they have dominated at United Cup. And Perhaps the exclamation point on top of the 15-2 and individual record this Team USA has accumulated throughout their run at United Cup, which, by the way, thank you to the listener who corrected me, pointed out that this event does offer points. I sincerely apologize for that unforced error. It's, again, a testament to my confusion towards some of the rules and how this United Cup actually works, but I'll tell you how it's worked for Team USA. They have been exceptional, whether, again, 15-2. and in individual matches. Pagula loses her first match to Kvitova. Fritz loses a three-set barn burner to Cam Nori, where he was up a break in the third set. And now today, Jessica Pagula, the exclamation part mark, as she earns a much-needed win over Iga Sviantek. 6-2-6-2 on those quick, low-bouncing, go-for-the-gun courts in Sydney. And look, a couple of things. Iga Nation who has been far too kind to this podcast. I'm going to quote Aaron Rodgers once again here on this show. Not that I think many of you are freaking out, but this is absolutely a relaxed moment for Team Ega. Like, Pagula played perfectly throughout the course of this United Cup battle. And again, all the condition complaints Team Ega has, the fact that you know Poland has to fly over, uh, I forget what city they were in, whether it was Perth, whether it was one of the other ones they have to fly in, to Sydney for this while Team USA has been in Sydney. The duration of the event, of course, I think that's a fair gripe. I would also point out that, you know, again, Pagula has had plenty of time to acclimate herself to this surface. And, you know, again, Team Poland was just coming over, playing on this surface for the first time. And this surface being as quick as it was, certainly you feel like for Pagula, she needs 
she needs all the court speed she can get, the help from the court speed in her efforts to take time away from Iga. But with all those advantages at her disposal, Pagula did exactly that. She took it to Iga Sviantek from start to finish in this match. And look, any 2-2 two and two win, the statistics are going to look gaudy for the winner of that match. But you look for Pagula, only made 55% of her first serves. She went 83% of those first serve points 24 of 29 behind her first serve only faced two break points in the match was broken once now only 146 percent of her first serves but you know the key thing was when she landed a first serve she was able to sustain herself as the aggressor with con- enough consistency to keep Iga on her back foot in her service games which against Iga who obviously broke 49.8 percent of the time for the duration of the 2022 season playing the most elite schedule on the WTA tour that's an impressive mark for Jessica Pagula to take advantage of the quick surface and to dominate behind her first strike tennis the other thing is boy did she dominate on the return of serve Iga for the match makes 63 percent of her first serves Iga won 15 of 41 points on serve today 15 of 41 she won just 37 percent of her points on serve. You know, you look throughout the course of the match, Iga had eight service games. Pagula broke her five of those eight times. Pagula was making magic with her backhand return today. Down the line, inside out, uh, down the line on the ad side, inside out on the deuce side, inside in on the deuce side, taking the forehand, big cross court, whichever side she got a look on that return on. She just played such aggressive tennis and... I I tweeted this out, and I apologize for repeating a tweet here on this show to some of you listeners who are kind enough to follow me on Twitter, but like, Pagula approached this match the way a Michigan fan and a Michigan football team has approached Ohio State this last two seasons, where it's like, you can just see a world for Jessica Pagula over the past six months where whatever else she was doing on any given day of her offseason, it was a weight training day, it was a match play heavy day, it was a drilling day. You feel like in all of those days, her and her team developed this 15-minute drill that they must have just called the Ega drill, where it's just like, look, we watched the film. Iga got you however many times throughout the course of last season. You look for, I think it was four times Pagula ultimately lost to Iga throughout the course of last year. Yeah, what, U.S. Open, French Open, Miami, so three times last season. You feel like they just said, we're never letting that happen again. And for Jessica Pagula, who reached number two in the WTA rankings last season, look, there's only one more hurdle to climb. She needs to make a Grand Slam final, win a Grand Slam title, become world number one. And even if she doesn't do that, she has had a remarkable career with everything she's accomplished. I'm just saying that's the only possible step up left for Pagula is to become that player. That's the only way she could get better at all. That's how good she has been. And in order to do that, you're going to have to go through Iga. And I really think, and by the way, Pagula's family owns the Buffalo Bills. This is a football mindset. You feel like there's a world where they developed the Iga drill, where they said, we're doing this every 15 minutes, where you're just going to swing away because we know the way to beat Iga for you, Jess, is you just got to swing away. And in my mind, they they got that competitive about it. They got that obsessed with it because you listen to the stories about any great athlete that obsession is a characteristic that transcends all of them I I I with how Pagula played today it felt like they came up with that sort of drill the ego drill and boy was it effective again for Jess who was on the precipice of so much greatness last year you know lost three slam quarterfinals to the eventual champion Barty Iga Iga um how many times did she lose to the tournament champion owns you would throw on that list as well that's the only threshold left for her and after losing to Kvitova in match number one steadying the ship since then she gets a signature victory over Iga in Sydney and again it's one loss for Iga in perfect conditions on a perfect day for Pagula okay Iga needs to play well if she wants. You know, the gap between her and the rest of the field, and by the way, Iga Svancek's still just 21 years old. Iga is not in her prime. I repeat, Iga is not yet in her prime. The gap between her and the rest of the field is not so big where she can afford to play poorly. Someone else plays their best, and it's a guaranteed Iga win. So, okay, she's not at prime Serena levels yet. She's 21 years old. Let's give her some time. Yes, the errors 
piled up for her. The forehand was spraying on her. But again, why was the forehand spraying on her? Because Pagula played exceptional tennis. That's the story coming out of this match, as well as the fact that Team USA is just the team to beat. I mean, Francis, comprehensive win over Casper Zouk. And look, Francis is spicy. And I really love the gamesmanship, the when he does something funny, looking confused into the crowd and the way no one engages a crowd and gets them involved better than Francis Tiafo in all of tennis. He you know, the the funky shank volley from Casper Zook, Tiafo goes up to the net, goes to give him a high five, gives him the fake high five, and Zook whiffs on that. If you've ever had someone pull the fake high five on you, it's actually sneakily one of the most upsetting things that happened because you're just like, really, dude, like, really, you make this friendly gesture and you're going to pull your hand away from me? Like, how petty and childish is that? And you could tell immediately following Tiafo doing that that Casper was pissed off that Tiafo had. At the end of the match, he wasn't pissed at all. Like, and I like that Tiafo does that stuff because, again, that's – it's it's not harmful in any way. You're having fun. You're poking fun. And immediately after the match, Tiafo obviously goes up to give him some love. And I think even at the changeover, after he did that, the fake high five, Tiafo gave him an apology. Zook wanted no part of that because, again, he was furious in the moment. And being down on the scoreboard, I'm sure, didn't help either. But, like, look, Tiafo had to win for the USA to advance over Poland. And Iga losing to Pagula, that sugar on top of the cake for this Team USA. But Tiafo absolutely did his job. And again, Fritz against Hercots, Keys against Lynette. Keys hasn't lost a match yet. Fritz lost one three-set thriller, can absolutely beat a guy in Hubi who's playing really well right now, coming off of a three-set loss himself to Berrettini. Keys is the clincher. She's got to be the one who just gets you over the finish line, uncomplicated tomorrow. But... Team USA has positioned itself really well, up 2-0 after day number one. And again, Sakari uh, and Greece to take on Italy. I don't know who the women are playing for Italy, to be honest. I know Trevi Sanz going to take on Sakari after that. I'm not sure who's the twos. I haven't seen enough of it. I'll cover it more tomorrow. But it's been fun. United Cup's been really fun. And you know what's fun? Watching a Team USA have success. And again, Goff's not playing with how well Korda started in Adelaide, Nakashima, all these other young guys, Tommy Paul, maybe a day or two in that event. And again, all the Anisimova, another player who could you feel like be on Team USA moving forward. Yeah, this is an event I think we're well positioned in moving forward. And so I keep my eye on this United Cup if you're a fan of American tennis. And if you're trying to get your fellow Americans, if you're listening to this podcast and are American and have friends who are American, if you want to try and get them into tennis, maybe they enjoy watching a team event. And maybe it's not the worst idea in the world to show them this team event as a precursor, to, as a way of saying, hey, like, America is good at tennis. You should spend more time watching it. And perhaps seeing a Team USA earn a victory – It'll compel them to give tennis a further shot. So there's your United Cup update. Again, still two more events for me to cover here on today's show. Let's go back to the WTA side of things. Look at the WTA results in Adelaide. Okay, a couple of things. I, I, I'm i waffling, which one, uh, wavering, whatever the word you want to use, on where to start today's show. Do I go with Sabalenka or do I go with Naskova? Let's stay true to our roots. We'll start with Sabalenka, who, in peak Sabalenka fashion, of course, goes up six, whatever the first set was, 4-1 overall in that second set on Marketa Vandrusova today is just in cruise control, playing lights out tennis. And, you know, you look for Arena Sabalenka. Uh, I do think heavy topspin players, particularly a lefty with heavy topspin, I mean, that's just matchup nirvana for a Sabalenka who's typically taller than the majority of her opponents. And as such, when you hit a heavier ball, it bounces just right up into her strike zone. And as someone who, again, binary scale, first time I get to say this in 2023, am I playing at the level of a Sabalenka of a high-level Division One college tennis player? No, that wasn't me growing up. If it's a binary scale and it's a one or zero, I'm a one, not a zero. And... I'm a one who was often taller than opponents that I would face. And when you face someone with heavy topspin whom you're taller than, that ball is just bouncing up into your strike zone and life is easier for you. The reason I loved hitting with my older brother, Eric, A, he's a little shorter than me. B, I'm a little better at tennis than him and it's always fun to beat your older brother. But C, why he's maybe 
Yeah, not my favorite hitting partner, but he's in the top five. Uh, is he hits this heavy top spin lefty ball that is just in my strike zone every time. And you essentially get to bunt down on backhands. Like you're just like, oh, I don't have to provide any of the top spin. All I have to do is swing through it and make clean contact with it, and it's all going to work perfectly. Like that's exactly what happened for Arena Sabalenka today against Marketa Von Drusova. That first set and a half, the 6 3 4 1 lead she built everything was in her strike zone. And, you know, you look for Sabalenka, another strong serving performance from the number two seed as Sabalenka, uh, again, races out to that 6-3-4-1 lead. She wins 73% of her first serve points, was over 50% on the second serve until she saw that 4-1 lead dissipate. You know, only four double faults for her on the day. She hit 73 first serves. If you're only double faulting four times out of 73, that double fault percentage is certainly under the 10% number we saw it over last season. Again, why I say something's never changed for Sabalenka is because I've said it before. She'll put together 20 minutes where she looks like the unequivocal best tennis player in the world. And then at 6-3-4-1 up, things go awry and she starts to spray and the drop shot lob combination gets under her skin and she gets impatient and just starts doing Sabalenka-esque things on the court. And she almost sabalenka this match away. Uh, credit to Vondrusova, who did start throwing in the chips, the charges, started to just say, screw it. I'm going to take the ball early, go big down the line, do my best to try and get you stretched. And by the way, the thing that has me most encouraged about Sabalenka right now, she's moving better than she has ever in her career. Just the length, the power of the first step, her fact that when she makes contact with the ball, she doesn't have to worry about the ball not going deep enough. Like she moved extraordinarily well. You know, again, 4-1 becomes 5-all, but Sabalenka immediately gets the break 4-6-5, is able to hold to close out the match. And again, watch the first hour of this match, how well she's taking the ball early on the rise, just clubbing everything she's getting from Marketa Von Drusova. You look for Sabalenka now into the semifinals here in Adelaide. It is, you look overall now, her seventh uh, semifinal since the start of last season and fourth since the start of August, right? She made the Cincy semis, U.S. Open semis, obviously made the finals in Fort Worth, now kicks off this season here with another hardcourt semifinal. She's on the short list of contenders. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and that's not a hot take given how many many late runs she's made at second weeks of slams of late. But again, with the power tennis she's able to play, the fact that even against Ivan Drusova, who thrives on disrupting rhythm, that match was played on Sabalenka's terms. And to me, that remains the biggest thing of why I enjoy and am such a believer in her game is because everything's always on her terms. And so Sabalenka into the semifinals where, look, Irina Camilla, her last name may be Begu, but she has big been great over the course of this opening week. I apologize. It's an opening week joke. Got to get it out now. Uh, Begu, just again, it was, it was a broken match uh, against Veronica Kudermatova and Begu actually went down three love in opening break in set number one, served for the first set up 5-4 only to get broken and then ultimately breaks right back and serves things out up 4-7-5 uh, first set. Begu, the 7-5-6-4 win. Begu, 7-37 against the top 10 entering today's match. She's now 8-37 overall, but for what it's worth, she's won two of her last three and got a top 10 win over the aforementioned Arena Sabalenka. Last year in Miami, their only career head-to-head. Look, Begu is Garbine Muguruza light. Like, she's 5'10", uses her length well, can crank up easy power because of that fact is better at absorbing, redirecting pace through her backhand wing. But if she has time on that forehand wing, it is the bigger weapon. She's confident moving forward. The big thing for me, 32 years old, I think she's moving better than she's ever moved before. And you look for Bagu, she's a two-thirds rule candidate, as I mentioned yesterday, 33-16 and 16 overall in her last 52 weeks. She's into a semifinal for the fourth time since the start of last season, third for her at the tour level. But again, the fourth came in a win at the Bucharest 125K by making the semifinals. The 32-year-old is up to number 32 in the rankings, 10 spots off her career high, but she's going to be freaking seated at the Australian Open, and you look for Bagu in terms of the points she has to defend. Made the second round of Australia last year, semifinals in St. Petersburg, but I guess that's a higher level than this event in Adelaide, but already has a semifinal under her belt. After that, 
not a ton to defend until that Roland Garros round of 16. She could be seeded uh, come Roland Garros. And, you know, again, you look for her in her career at the tour level. Arena Camilla Bigu, 281 and 245 overall. That's a 53% win percentage. You look for her on clay, 134 and 82, 62%. So if she can be seeded and guaranteeing herself, you know, seated at Roland Garros and guaranteeing herself entry into the big clay court events coming up. We could see her reach that career high. Again, that's how well Bagu is playing, 32 years old, but 32 years young if you actually watch her compete out on court. And again, Kudermatova is just too one-dimensional today. Couldn't extend rallies well enough. Had a bunny of a volley on her racket to win the game and get the hold for 6-5 in set number two. Uh, excuse me, for 5-all. 5-all uh, or 4-all? It must have been four all because I think Bagu held to close the match. Yeah, it was Kudermatova was serving a long four all game. She had 40 30. She had this high forehand volley. She set things up beautifully and she missed the volley in the net. And just again, Kudermatova ranked 48th amongst top 50 players in break percentage last season. Now she was number four in hold percentage. She's the inverse of Daria Kasatkina. But Kudermatova just much like Samsonova can get we saw the Samsonova excuse me against Azarenka or not Azarenka Sabalenka hasn't found that 75% ball on the return of serve it's full speed either to create this massively advantageous opportunity for herself or it's full speed into the back fence and again Bagu did a great job of absorbing the first strike moving the ball around the court hitting different service spots each time serving into the body and I thought Kudermatova what didn't park the bus and just try to play exclusively through the Pagu uh, forehand as much as she should have throughout the course of the match. So again, a really good win for Pagu to set things up against Sabalenka. Sabalenka, a 73% favorite over Pagu. Uh, you know, shout out to Onjabur, who is playing uh, Marta Kostyuk in what looks like a really fun match through the first set uh, as of me recording this show. So I'll talk about Owens more tomorrow, who got a first-round win over Serana Kirstea. 6-1 and one was in her bag of tricks doing so. Uh, but the other match I want to spend some time talking about here quickly. We'll do, I promise, a full Owens segment tomorrow. But Linda freaking Naskova. The power, the fluidity. I know I just called Bagu a poor woman's Garbine Muguruza. Linda Neskova might be Garbine Muguruza with more intensity, with more relentlessness, with maybe even a little bit more fluidity. And now I think Garbine's a little bit more explosive, but the technique, the relentless power, you know, the – I don't want to say the blank face mentality because the ability to just move on and get to the next point and just you know focus on the moment at hand. To do all the things she does at 18 years old, she was ridiculous in her three-set win over Victoria Azarenka. You look uh, ultimately in their Adelaide quarterfinal, Azarenka – or excuse me, uh, Naskova earning a 6-4, 6-7, 7-6 victory. She's into her second career semifinal. Look, Azarenka won 123 points to Naskova's 121. This match was a pick'em sort of match, and ultimately Naskova 8-6 in the third set breaker over Azarenka. She was able to go shot for shot with Azarenka in terms of generating first ball opportunities, in terms of, again, staying tenacious throughout the course of the third set, in terms of not blinking, staring down the face of break deficits or break point opportunities. Just... It's how easy the backhand technique is and how easy it is for her to hit through that ball. And then I become more and more convinced of the forehand technique each time I see her play. I think the backswing is a little big, but the grip isn't too extreme. Her ability to swing through the ball and generate angle for herself, get outside the ball, isn't too extreme. I mean, again, you look at Linda Naskova, 18 years old for her career. Naskova, 90 and 35. It's won 72% of her matches so far into a second career, uh, second career, excuse me, semifinal at the tour level. And, you know, again, you look for Naskova by making this semifinal. She now jumps all the way up to a new career high of number 69. Yeah, I, I mean, she is now the the youngest player inside the WTA top 75 with Linda Fruktovertova currently sitting at number 80. The weapons are real. I think she's a better athlete than Clara Tossin, but has all the same firepower. And all of you listeners know how fond I am of Tossin's upside. Not to pit the two against each other, but it's just like, it's another 
dare I say, tier one talent you got to throw on the list. Is she the WTA equivalent of Holger Runa, where we think we have Elkaraz, Sinner, we think we have, you know, Coco Goff, Raducanu, Fernandez, and then it's like, no, actually, the Holger Runa, Linda Naskova would like to enter, a combination would like to enter the conversation. And again, she was that good against Victoria Azarenka. And, you know, again, it just sets up another blockbuster battle and a blockbuster weekend in Adelaide as you look right now. Uh, Naskova going to f- face the winner of Jabur and Kostyuk, whichever way that goes, if it's the two youngsters, Kostyuk and, uh, and Naskova, or it's Topsy Jabur against Naskova. I'm all in on that. Sabalenka, 73% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract, against Big Goo. Again, tough to know what her win percentage will be compared to Jabur if Jabur gets through. Certainly, if Kostyuk wins, Sabalenka becomes the favorite to capture the title in Adelaide. Just a quick update, because I've covered a lot of the Adelaide men's stories already. Look, Sebi Korda looks top 10. And Sebi today, a 7-5, 6-2 win, or 6-1, I think, win over Yannick Sinner. Look, at the end of the first set, Sinner was stretched wide on a forehand. He hit it on the slide, kind of hurt his left hip doing so, and he was hobbled, got broken right away in set number two. And Korda just overwhelmed him with pace, with angles throughout the course of that second set. But, I mean, for the third consecutive match, Korda came right out of the gates, and he broke Yannick Sinner at the start of the of the match. And yeah, Sinner was able to get that break back, but you look for Sebi Korda, just he's hitting the forehand with more sting. He's getting outside the ball with more ease. He's getting his legs there with more time. As big as Sinner hit the ball with the length, the speed of the first step, the anticipation skills of Sebastian Korda, and then the fluidity of his technique, he is hitting the ball so much better out of the corners. And again, he won 83%, 25 of 30 first serve points, fought off three of the four break points that he faced. You know, I thought it was really sound tactically facing the hobbled center in set number two, just absorbed the first strike, focused on getting the ball into the hour third, attacked when the opportunity presents himself. His ability to redirect his plus one forehand down now down the line is just what a top 10 elite server is able to do. And so, again, I think the serve looks real. It's a trend we've seen. He's now holding over 90% of the time since the start of October last year. If that sustains for a full year, Sepcourt is ending the year top 10. That's not uh that's not a question or you know that's not speculation that's just a fact if he's able to hold ninety percent of the time for a season he will be a top ten player at the end of this year and that's why he's a borderline tier one guy for me that's why I said he's going to finish as the top ranked American because I do think his best I think it looks better than a Berrettini I think it looks better than a Rublev I just think it's more well rounded it you know it's, it's the well rounded aggression. I mean, it's elite ground strokes with an elite serve, an elite movement. It's just like, it's everything. It's Berrettini with a backhand, the best version, right? Of Well, maybe not quite the forehand, but it's more well-rounded. Again, it's it's everything we thought Alex Virev might be, but with the calm demeanor and the kind face of Sebastian Corda. And so I'm saying it right now, Sebi Corda's a tier one talent. Put him in tier one for me. I, I think he's a guarantee. I think he's the guy who ends the slam drought for American men's tennis. There's a week one hot take for all of you listeners who made it to mini 58 of this show. You know who else I think is going to get another slam, whether it's this year or in the course of the next three years? Daniil Medvedev on hard courts. He just looks like he has his swagger back. And 3-3 three and three victory for him over Karen Hatchinov. Won the last three games of the first set. Went down an early break, but I think won the last five games of the second set. He's in brick wall mode. I think he looks a little quicker. Like he looks a little stronger. He's in the forehand with a little more pace. And then as well round as the defensive skills, excuse me, are, you then remember that, oh yeah, he also is six foot six and possesses a top ten serve and has been a top ten server for much, if not all, of the past four and a half seasons. Yeah, he's got a swagger back, and you know, God willing, he's going to face Novak Djokovic, who has yet to face Shapovalov as of me recording this podcast. But obviously, I will talk about that on tomorrow's show. The last thing is Yoshi, Yoshihito Nishioka, who is going to be a top 50 player from start to finish this season, into another semifinal. Should have won in straight sets, had a match point in set number two, but ultimately threw in three. He outlasts physically uh, Alexi Popperin. Shout out to Popperin for not pulling the ripcord. So often you'll see a player hobbled. Shout out to Sinner as well for doing this. Hobbled down a set and a break. They just say they're done. Popperin didn't do that in the third. 
his serve, his forehand are top 50 weapons, top 25 weapons when they're landing. I thought he hit the backhand really well. I thought he moved well, but Yoshi just got him stretched, and he is a little stiff, uh, certainly in his corners. You feel like that's when the errors come because he tries to hit his way out of everything. You'd love to see him move forward more confidently with how much space he creates when he has his feet set on that forehand. That said, credit to Yoshi. Sliced and diced him into the semifinals is Yoshihito Nishioka. With that said, that's your look at the last 24 hours in the pro tennis world. Of course, we will be back throughout the course of this week number one to keep all of you listeners in the loop on everything happening in the tennis world. Of course, a shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. And I keep thinking these pods are going to shorten as each day progresses. They do not. That's how excited we are to have tennis back in our lives. And, of course, we'll continue to have more mini-break podcasts each and every day for all of you listeners throughout the course of the 2023 season. The reason we're able to do that because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.